Hello and welcome to the New Lines podcast. I'm Faisal Yafai. And this is a podcast where we delve into some of the biggest ideas, events and personalities in the Middle East and beyond. At this year's Oscars, the critically acclaimed sci-fi epic Dune won a total of six awards, cementing its status as a major pop cultural event. Set in the far future, the film, like the 1965 book it is based on, draws obvious inspiration from Arab and Middle Eastern influences. Most of the story takes place on the fictional desert planet of Arrakis and follows the messianic journey of Paul Atreides, a young outsider who ultimately comes to lead the indigenous Fremen in a conflict against the imperial overlords, plundering their planet's precious resources. But the epic's relationship to Islam in the Middle East is both complicated and controversial. With the release of the film last year, these aspects came under close scrutiny by reviewers, These conversations have become a microcosm of a larger discourse about Orientalism, colonialism, and representation in fiction, and particularly in science fiction. My guest today is Harris Durrani, an author and historian at the University of Princeton, whose many essays examining these aspects of Dune have been published in the Washington Post, the LA Review of Books, The Nation, and of course, here at New Lines. Harris, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. I think it's fair to say that you've become one of the most prominent Dune scholars uh, over the last year or so. My first question, I suppose, is simply why Dune? It's clear that it means a lot to you personally, but what is it about this story in particular that has inspired such intense interrogation? Why Dune is such a huge question, and I will try to answer it briefly. Um, I think the way I initially came to Dune uh, was as a kid. uh, uh, You know, I'm my dad is from Pakistan. My mom is from Dominican Republic. I grew up in a post 9-11 America and I'm Muslim. And mm-hmm. so reading Dune was just a beautiful way. I mean, of course, we'll talk about the many problems with the novels. But as a kid reading Dune, it was just an amazing thing to see a fully realized science fiction, science fiction future in which Islam was taken seriously. Um, and I, over the last year or so, the reason why Dune has been... Um, more than I, I've seen a lot of discourse, both positive and negative about the novel and the film. And I felt that my experiences with the novels were not reflected in anything that I read or heard. Mm. Uh, and I just, my experience is not, you know, the Muslim experience or anything like that, but it's at least one experience that I didn't see reflected anywhere else. So mm. most of my writing is just me asserting my sheer existence. And and what is your experience of the novel? And perhaps you should start with what you feel the overarching reviewers were saying and then your own take on it. Yeah, I I think there's a tendency to uh, uh, cast off the novels as, you know, this Orientalist white savior narrative, which it has elements of all of those things. And it definitely is Orientalist. But I I think there's, and and even among people who um, are more positive about the novels, well, often tend to say that, well, you know, the novels deal with Islam and and with Arab culture and Islamic history, but these are merely cosmetics. And these are just, you know, exotic aesthetics that, you know, it creates this far future that this sense of strangeness. Whereas for me, reading the novels was like speaking with my, you know, with a weird, slightly conservative uncle at the mosque telling me this weird science fiction story. You know what I mean? It was a more internalist view from within Islam, even though Herbert himself is not Muslim. And I think that was something that was a very strange experience, reading this old white dude telling this very Islamic story. Um, And that was something that I hadn't, even the depth of the metaphors and the speculation and the way that he 
draws on Islamic themes is something that I think if one isn't in Islamic studies or isn't Muslim, is actually hard to pick up because some of it is so subliminal. It's not just the language and the use of Arabic terms, but the, the storytelling and the ideas. Well, a lot of the interrogation, as you say, has focused on this notion of the white savior, um, you know, the, the person who swoops in and rescues the natives from themselves. And I think even a, a summary reading of the story of Dune, you can see why people would think that, would think that about uh, Paul Atreides, because he does come across as this Lawrence of Arabia figure. There are these uncomfortable colonial overtones, even in the movie, frankly. And I wonder why you think it's more complicated than it appears on the page. Yeah, uh, it's it's a very complicated question. I think um, for me, I tend to lean against the idea. I tend to say that Dune is Orientalist, but it's not a white savior narrative um, because even in the first novel, um, I think there's a tendency in these golden age science fiction novels to say, well, you know, they're all about some white boy, you know, gaining his adulthood, his manhood and saving the day. And so people tend to ascribe that onto Dune but if you read the novel carefully, it's very clear that Herbert does not like, he, he sympathizes with Paul and there's a, ten, a sense in which the novels are sympathetic toward his character, but it's also very clear that Paul is not really the savior of the Fremen and the, the Fremen may not even need Paul to save them. Uh, and that's something that people say is in the later books as well, but it's, it is very clear in the first novel. Um, and even Frank Herbert himself uh, read critiques of T.E. Lawrence's Seven Pillars um, uh, for example, Suleiman Musa's uh, T.E. Lawrence, an Arab view, uh, arguing that the, for Arab agency and against the idea of T.E. Lawrence as this critical figure um, in, uh, in history. And so it's very clear that Herbert was engaging with these critical histories, as well as the hagiographies of T.E. Lawrence and playing on those in very complicated ways. And I would say even the film, uh, I think, again, because in Hollywood, we tend to uh, uh, look for these narratives of, you know, the white boy saves the day, that it, it seems like that on the surface, but so many of, so much of the way that Paul's character is portrayed in the film, I think is actually even more, more negative even than in the books. Um, but I still have other problems with the film beyond, I think the problems with the film are elsewhere and with the novels are elsewhere. Okay, well, we'll come to the problems with the with the film and the novel, but I just want to understand, do you think that the misreading of it as a white savior narrative, do you think the misreading of that is because we are looking at it through Western eyes? And if you look at it through what you might call Muslim eyes, or, or you look at it as a Muslim story, it changes the way you interpret Dune? I think definitely. I, I think part of it does have to do with uh, which lens you come to the story with. Um, and I think also, well, explain, yeah, yeah, no, just explain that bit, Harris, because yeah. the, the book is the book. I mean, the, the, the book wasn't, there weren't multiple editions of it. It is the book. So how can you come at it from a different perspective and see something so different in it from a Muslim perspective, for example? Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, part of it is, is if you, if you read the, the references to Islam in the novel, I mean, I think part of it is that there's a tendency to say, oh, Dune is, you know, Arabs in the future, basically. It's Arabs on a desert planet on Tatooine or something. When what's, for me, what's always been so attractive to, about Dune is that it's many things at once, right? So it is about Islam, but it's also about indigenous, the Quileute tribe in, in the United States. It's also about decolonization. It's about Ismaili history. It's about oil politics. It's about all of these things. And so when you're looking at Paul's character, his character is both an analogy for, for example, 
Jesus or the prophet Muhammad, um, but he's also an analogy for the colonial leaders, but he's also very clearly, I mean, explicitly, he's the Mahdi, right? Uh, and so uh, what's my, my interpretation of the novels, and I think this is clear even if you listen to Frank Herbert's interviews as well, but you don't need those interviews, is that Herbert is trying to speculate what would the coming of a future Mahdi look like in the far future? Um, and, and what would be the dangers of someone calling themselves Mahdi or people calling him Mahdi when maybe he's not actually the savior that you want him to be? And do you think that that comes across on a cursory reading of the, the novel or a watching of the film? Um, I think it does come across uh, in, a, in a reading in both. But again, it's, it's, uh, it can be seen as subtle because part of what Herbert is trying to do, at least in the novel, is he says, I want to show you the superhero narrative and your complicity within it. Um, mm. And so a lot of it is, it, I think th that's part of the reason it's difficult to read the book is he's both you know, mirroring the superhero narrative and the savior narrative at the same time as he's trying to critique it. And I think in some of those ways, he ends up reinscribing the narrative. But, in, but I think at the same time, you can't just call it a straight up white savior narrative. He is at least trying to do something complicated. And I think the not, movie has a similar issue, but yeah. I mean, the Muslimness of Dune is, is something that is quite stark, not merely, as you say, Paul is referred to as the Mahdi, um, the Fremen faith, one of the faiths is called Zen Sunnism, right. um, you know, other things like the teachings of the Hadith and so on and so on. Um, how much substance do you think there is to that Muslimness? Because it's one thing to reference these things as a kind of window dressing. Um, it's another thing if Herbert was actually trying to engage with these Islamic ideas. And I wonder, you certainly seem to think that he was trying to. I wonder if perhaps a, a, it, he wasn't really trying to engage. This is 1965. If he right. wasn't really trying to engage with these Islamic ideas. But it does feel to me the kind of, like in the same way that, that Shakespeare used references to Italy. It, they yeah, were, he yeah. wasn't really writing about Italy. He was just trying to suggest somewhere far off and exotic. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. So I have an article at Tor.com, which is basically a uh, very detailed critique of this exact idea, um, because I, I really think that's not an accurate reading of the novels. Um, because if you, for example, you know, it's Ramadan. I don't know when this is airing, but right now it's Ramadan. And I think one of the coolest things in Dune is he actually, because on Dune, Arrakis has two moons. So he speculates in the novels on how you would calculate um, the, the Ramadan on a lunar calendar when you have two moons. Mm. Um, and he has other aspects that, to me, you know, the use of the Islamic stuff isn't just metaphorical, but it's speculative. Right? That, that stuff about the Mahdi. He's not saying, oh, Paul is like the Mahdi. He's saying, what if Paul is the Mahdi or, the, or uh, claiming to be the Mahdi? So he's asking these speculative questions about what Islam and Arab culture and many other religion, religions and cultures would look like thousands and, th and thousands of years into the future. So, for example, in the in the book, he, the, the Fremen say that Paul is like Abu Zaid, who traveled in the in a frigate, escaping the guild to one end of the galaxy and then came back. And, mm -hmm. and that is very, Abu Zaid. So what is Abu Zaid? Abu Zaid, it means um, father of Zaid. Right. And, and one of the Prophet Muhammad's son was Zaid. Um, and, and the story of the frigate is very clear, clearly the story of Isla al-Miraj. So Frank Herbert there, he's not just taking um, 
you know, language, but he's actually taking a, like one of the most essential stories in Islam and, and imagining how a future version of Muslims would sort of reinterpret and reimagine that story in their own language of the future, which to me, that's something way beyond just aesthetics. He's actually thinking and speculating about how religion will change and evolve and be reinterpreted in new ways in the distant future. To me, that's what's, that's why I've always loved Dune is it has that speculative element about Islam. Perhaps the most unusual part is the um, the book's exploration of jihad, which is taken out of the, the film. But even if you uh, take into account that Dune was written you know, half a century before the war on terror, it's still quite striking to see jihad used in that way, in a way that isn't really um, negative. And Herbert seems to engage with the concept of jihad beyond the, I mean, the, the popular conception of it as a synonym for holy war. He has this thing where, where Paul talks about teaching his followers that uh, each man is a little war. And you've written that you think that's a reference to the idea of jihad and nafs, like the inner struggle. Yes. Yeah. So much. I think what's so funny about Dune is we tend to think of Dune, we think giant sandworms and spaceships and spice. But, you know, the action scenes are very short. And most of Dune is just, you know, people thinking to themselves. And I think in that sense, Herbert was very interested in jihad al-nafs. I don't know if he explicitly was thinking of that himself, but I, even in his use of jihad and the material outer jihad of, of, of warfare, I think even that is, is exceptional um, because, it, you know, there's different ways of reading jihad in the novels. You know, one way is, oh, you know, jihad is this evil thing, the way we think, the way, you know, some people think of it today, post 9-11. Um, and then there's the way in which, you know, jihad has a sort of decolonial connotation, at least in the first novel. Um, but what I think even an even closer reading of the, of the book that's so fascinating is that uh, the way that jihad comes to the Fremen as this war and violence is through uh, the missionary activities that influence the Fremen to produce this jihad in the first place. So what we associate today as this sort of, um, you know, the, the bad, evil, Muslim terrorist, Herbert is sort of reappropriating and saying that th th this kind of violence actually comes from a, a, what's basically a sort of Jesuit Christian missionary force influencing well, was, and modifying Fremen traditions. He was writing in the midst of the global decolonial struggle. So it's quite right. likely that he was thinking about it in that context, jihad obviously being used as a way of motivating people against uh, colonialism. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about the uh, the adaptation uh, into the recent film. Uh, this is something that, that you and others have been critical of because we are we are still in the post 9-11 cultural space. And so one of the major changes, of course, is that they took out references to jihad and changed it to crusade or to holy war. Um, and you've been critical of the adaptation in general for failing to engage with the kind of Islamicness of the book. You, tell me, you said earlier that you had some issues with the with the uh, the film. Let's start there. Sure. Um, yeah, my issue with the film is is I mean b beyond the casting issue, which everyone has sort of bludgeoned to death by this point. Uh, but it, it's more about well, um, let's I mean let's start with the casting. Okay. Issue. I mean, yeah. That's sure. the audience isn't familiar. With it. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yes. So uh, there are no there are basically no people from the Middle East or North Africa cast in the film, and there are no Muslims in the film. With the exception of, um, I believe his name is, is David Dalmatian, who is Iranian, who plays the Mentat to the Baron. Um, but he's not playing a Fremen. 
but I mean, but uh, so I mean, it's it's very weird that you know, of course, Dune is drawing on a lot. It's not really. I always like to say, you know, I'm coming to it from a Muslim perspective, but it's not just about Muslims. It's also about uh, Native Americans and uh, indigenous tribes in Brazil. It has so many influences. Right, but, like Harris. They didn't cast Native Americans. They didn't yes. cast. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> none of that. <laughs> I understand that there are arguments against it, but frankly, yeah. like you know. Yeah, um, but. To, to me, what's what's disturbing is the it sort of casts this uh, this binary of you know for the most part the imperialists are all white people and then the fremen are all sort of generic people of color with the exception of Stilgar who <laughs> who they ca they cast a Spanish actor right um, and so it's it's very frustrating that a, that a book which is in large part influenced by Mena and Islamic culture and religion, even beyond Islam. There's a lot of references in the book to, to Christian Arab history. Uh, none of that is reflected in the casting choices. Um, but my, my problems with the movie were deeper than that, hmm. which is that the, 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 the film uses its Arabic and Islamic terms um, as, as sort of set dressing in the same way that the, you know, the makers of the film said that the books do that, which I don't think is true, but I think the film does that. It does treat the Arab and Islamic influences as set dressing, right. where they're not often explained. The deeper meaning is not there. Uh, and then even the way that the, the, um, the, the imagery and the visuals and the aesthetic, the visual, audiovisual aesthetics, you know, the Fremen and Arrakis is very, you know, vaguely ethnic. Literally, yeah. Hans Zimmer, who did the, did the, 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 set, the music, he literally said, Arrakis is very ethnic, so we have to use wooden, wooden instruments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and, and it's like my, my Lion King uh, uh, soundtrack, which was African. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? And then whereas, you know, the Empire... It's kind of shocking. Is, I mean, is, we, we, yeah. we toss this argument to one side, but it's really kind of astonishing. Yeah. Really, yeah, really yeah. shocking. I mean, you're talking yeah. about, about huge global cultures. You're not talking about some minor culture somewhere. Right. And I, for me, what I love so much about Dune is that it isn't a generic take on, it is mixing a lot of different cultures and religions, but it's definitely not generic. His mm. references are extremely, extremely specific. He's referring to Israel Miraj as a, <laughs> right? right? And making right. the Burak a space for, for right. Um Whereas, you know, I, I don't expect the film to, you know, do a full appendix on the religion of Dune or anything like that. But I think the, what, what's great about film is it's an audiovisual medium, unlike a novel. So even though you can't describe everything, you can try to bring in those influences into the visuals and the sound of, yeah. of the film. And they don't do that, really. And even, yeah. Even, yeah. And, and I think, I mean, this is my critique of it as well. This is why I was sort of interested to hear your perspective on it, because my my criticism of, of the movie and in general with the um, Hollywood's depiction of Islamic culture is the, the lack of effort that goes into it. And actually, I'll give you an example which is by, which is from another movie by Denis Villeneuve, who directs this one, um, which is called Arrival, which I think is not not a hugely popular movie, but it was about, I don't know if you had a chance to see it, yes. it's about, yeah, about um, humans trying to communicate with aliens and learning their language. And that movie goes to great lengths to depict this alien, but internally coherent language. And in the movie itself, there's a brief moment of Arabic in the movie, and it's total gibberish. It's just, you know, it's, it's not written. It's not real words that are written. The letters don't connect. It's total rubbish. And I thought, isn't it, 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 what better example can you think of of Hollywood laziness than spending millions on an alien language 
and not taking the the 10 seconds to correctly depict you know one of the half dozen major languages of our species yeah it's it's very frustrating and to me it's especially frustrating because Denis Villeneuve really is I mean I actually like the Dune film I don't think it's an amazing film but I enjoyed it I just had problems with it but Denis Villeneuve is one of my favorite directors and especially one of his first films in Sandi I think you know it has some issues but is a really you know fascinating take on basically it's basically a metaphor for the di diaspora and the Lebanese civil war uh, and, and and it deals with these questions of uh, violence and history and the sort of the problem of um, a narrative that you can't quite trust in the Middle East. And that is what Dune is. I mean, Frank Herbert, he was trying to deal with his own role as a white man writing about <laughs> these other cultures. And many of the, much of the book is sort of him struggling through that in good ways and bad ways. And whereas I think the, the film just tries to say, okay, you know, it doesn't deal with the specificity and the subversive quality of you know, white people trying to tell the story about brown yeah. people, you know? You told NPR that you didn't think that Villeneuve had put in the work. So what would putting in the work look like? I think putting in the work would have been, you know, doing the research and, you know, both, I don't mean that Denis Villeneuve shouldn't have directed the film. I mean, it would have been great to get another director with a certain background. But I mean, as long as, you know, he had writers or consultants, who are working on the script with him who are of Arab or Muslim background, which are not necessarily the same thing, of course. Or, you know, in the even in the set design, the, the dresses and the architecture and the music, if he brought in Muslim and Arab artists, there's so much amazing, cool uh, uh, Muslim and Arab artwork out there and artists who are brilliant, who could have done some futuristic take on the hijab or something i don't I know, know right it's, it's such a <laughs> such a missed opportunity yeah. don't you think yeah it really is it's very sad it's very it, sad it, it, honestly i think the only word for it is sad it's like it's because you know hollywood has some of the greatest artists of of the american experience now and yet you feel like wouldn't it be wonderful to have them work on these ideas these you know islamic ideas arab yeah. ideas and, and yet you don't see it at all I just think it's such a shame that we're living through this particular period when one of the world's great cultures is so denigrated by another one of the great cultures. This is actually the same thing with casting. I mean, we'll go back to it. Um, I was talking to our producer about this because we were talking about the star of the movie, Timothy Chalamet, and you know, he was saying, you know, it's, it's, it's a shame they didn't get like an, an Arab actor to do it. And in a way, I kind of, I can come... I can come with Hollywood a little bit because they say, you know, you have to have a certain, the actor has to be of a certain generation and maybe there aren't that many major Arab actors of that generation. Maybe Rami Malek would be the only one. So, okay, you have to have a major star. I'll come with you. Mm -hmm. And then Zendaya, okay, she's a woman of color, very famous star. Okay, I'll come with you. But then you get to, as you said, Javier Bardem. And it's like, and I like Javier Bardem. He's a really good actor. But why can't you find a famous Arab actor? Like yeah. the Middle East is full of actors who are, you know, really, really famous in Arab cinema. Wouldn't it have been amazing to put them into Dune? Yeah, it's it's very sad. I I, I really wish they had done that. And even for the the emp, 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 the rest of the Empire and the other Imperial characters, it sort of assumes this this dichotomy of colonizer white man and you know colonized brown person, except for the leader of the colony. Yeah, and it's actually I. I it's interesting because I've seen other films with Javier Bardem and he's much lighter skinned <laughs> and he's, no, he seems a little bit darker in this. Oh my God. And actually there's an interview with, on the Middle Geeks podcast where they mentioned that, I, um, uh, 
one of the, the interviewees uh, mentions that their friend was on the set with Javier Bardem, and I think he was complaining that they were making his his face too brown with the makeup. <laughs> wow, what did you see? Crazy. So they know the issue, right? They yeah, know yeah, what the yeah. problem is. <laughs> oh, this is absolutely how. Well, this is why some of the the pretense annoys me because the, it's the, you know people know exactly what they are doing. And uh, then they sort of pretend, oh no, we, did, we didn't realize. It's just, it's just the tinting of the, it's the tinting of the movie. Yeah, yeah, and and, and they, they really don't. It's it's shocking that, I mean, you know, Denis Villeneuve called me. I'm still really willing to work for you, um, <laughs> but um, you know, I think they really don't care. They just don't think about these things. If, yeah. they, they sort of understand, but they don't quite because um, they've been casting for the second film. And, you know, one thing I've heard is, oh, well, you know, you don't really see any of the emperor, the Padisha uh, characters uh, in the film. And the only ones you do see are black. So maybe the Padisha, the, the main emperor and his daughter, they're going to be black, cast as black actors. But they started casting those characters and they're casting white actors. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> so they really, I think they really don't care. And it's, it's very frustrating. You see, I, yeah. I guess uh, my take on it isn't that they don't care it's that they know exactly what they're doing and that it's that there isn't sufficient pushback i mean the the arabic yeah. example from arrival i think is a good example because they wouldn't do that with any other language because there would be a lot of pushback against it right but when it comes to the arabic language because of the particular moment that we are living through political moment there isn't any pushback and even when there is a pushback you know it's kind of dismissed like oh whatever it's just one moment in the movie why can't you focus on the bigger picture you know things like that right right yeah they're I, not I really want, thinking yeah yeah um i wanted to talk a bit about dune as an allegory because i i think one of the reasons people get confused about it is because they are looking and this i think is your point that they're looking for let's say a simplistic interpretation of what is there and in some ways dune allows for a myriad interpretations because in some ways it's the it's the retelling of the story of the prophet muhammad coming to the arabs it's an allegory for colonialism it's something about the discovery of oil in the 20th century there are these multiple references that you can look at and say, oh, that's what they're talking about. But in reality, it's a whole bunch of things. It isn't really a clear allegory. Yeah, it's, it, it's, it's, this is, again, why I love Dune so much, is it works on so many levels. It's, it's multiple metaphors, but it's also speculative. Uh, and I think, you know, Frank Herbert, I'll be honest, is not a great writer on a prose level. <laughs> he has some great lines, but the, overall, he's not a great prose writer. But what, for me, elevates Dune to a work of art is the way is how intertextual it is uh in that he it's very hard to pin down the politics and the message and what the metaphors are and what he's speculating about but he's also so specific that it's not it's not really vague uh and i think as a result if you're paying attention to the references and you're carefully reading the novels it creates this almost uh destabilizing effect in the mind of the reader of a careful reader which to me, you know, they say that, you know, good art has to destabilize you or disturb you at some level. And I think that's what Dune accomplishes at its best is it, it, it all of the references are so interesting and confusing in good ways that it brings you to this level of, you know, profound, deep destabilization, uh, which I just love. It's, it's just, it's brilliant and fun to, to explore that. Um, but then the other thing I would just say is also with respect to the speculation i mean in some ways dune is a is a deeply you know what some might say orthodox 
uh, book with respect to Islam, because one reading of the speculative aspect of it is Frank Herbert is saying, well, you know, uh, maybe you shouldn't have a prophet in the future. Maybe, you know, the prophet Muhammad was the, should be the last prophet and he shouldn't try to claim prophecy afterhood because then what, afterwards, because then what results is just chaos. Um, and so in <laughs> that sense, like the a, speculative elements are pretty orthodox. It sounds like a direct criticism of the, the, the Shia view of the Mahdi, which is a whole right. other conversation. Yeah. You, the whole thing is about that stuff. Yeah. 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 Um, but I don't imagine that he was specifically criticizing the, the Shia faith. No, he he's he's also very sympathetic as well. He's you know, he he acknowledges that religion does have to continue and you do have to have these leaders who take on the political and religious mantle. But he just he's also dealing with the difficulties of that. And I mean the whole books are very much about a smiley history. Yeah. You brought up Frank Herbert, so we should talk about the man. Um you've talked about his influences, but Dune is very much rooted in his worldview, I think. Yes, it is. And his worldview is very complicated. I mean, to me, the biggest critique of Dune is that his conservative politics does come out, mm. um, perhaps even more so. His Orientalism is a sort of old school German <laughs> Orientalism or something like that. I don't know. I don't think he was reading German Orientalist, but he's an old school Orientalist. But it really it's his politics that he, you know, he his parents, I believe, were in a some kind of socialist commune. But then he became disillusioned with socialism and he worked for a uh, a uh, Republican senator, but then yeah. he he was he befriended a Quileute man who actually partially raised him when he was a child. So he was very close with the Quileute tribe in in Seattle in, in Washington State. Um, and then, but then during his time in politics, he he actually he um, his cousin, by the way, was Joe McCarthy, the Joe McCarthy, <laughs> and he was so he was working for his senator, and he saw his senator Robert Kennedy and Joe McCarthy all talking together as they were collaborating on the McCarthy trials. And he was absolutely disgusted by that. And that was sort of how he became disillusioned with politics. And so then you, for example, there's a very famous dinner scene in the book, which is not in the, in the, in the movie, uh, which is pretty clearly him reimagining Kennedy, his senator, and Joe McCarthy, and sort of showing how the Harkonnens and the Atreides and everyone at the dinner table, all these aristocrats are all sort of part of the same imperialist system. Um, and so in many ways, the books are sort of his attempt to grapple with his varying political views. But you do see elements of his conservatism creep out, I think, not so much in the fact that he worked for a Republican senator, but more in his deeper beliefs about, for example, he struggles to, to acknowledge structural power. And for him, a lot of it is about the individual and how does the individual reconcile their relationship to society. And it makes it hard for him to, he kind of comes close, but he never really delivers a full-throated critique of the structures of capitalism or imperialism even though in some way he was writing about colonialism yes but i think for him you know it's it, he, he it goes back and forth in, in the novels which is why they're so difficult to read my personal reading is that you know yes imperialism you know there is this structure but it's, power structures only exist to the degree that you believe they exist and so the way you break the chains is that you refuse to, to acknowledge that there is an inevitable power structure and the Fremen's fault, the reason that they're colonized, you no, know, partly is because of the colonizer, but is it is also because they can't recognize the chains of their oppression. Mm. So, which is, you know, kind of true. And there's like kind of a Foucauldian analysis there, but also, you know, power structures do exist in the world. Today, that would be called blaming the victim. Yes, yes. 
I wonder how you think his, how successful you think um, his treatment of colonialism is in the in the book. As you say, it's complicated. It isn't entirely obvious. I mean, I think you think that he isn't very sympathetic to um, the main protagonist, Paul Atreides, but it doesn't come across as like that in the in the novel because the novel is about him. Yeah, it's it's interesting because the you are taught to uh, like Paul along the way. But then you also, there are certain moments in the novel where um, the way he treats his mother and the way his mother cowers before him as he starts gaining these spice visions. Mm. Um, there's a very critical moment where he convinces the Fremen to change one of their critical, their key traditions in order for him to gain power. And, you know, you could, you could read it as, oh, this is a, you know, white savior guy. He's claiming the power from the Fremen. But he could also read it as this, the same thing. as like he's a white savior guy claiming the power from the Fremen. But as Frank Herbert meaning to say that this is actually a bad thing. Um, and so in that sense, you know, he is reinscribing the white savior narrative because he, because the Fremen are following him. But on the other hand, you know, the language and the way Herbert writes that scene is kind of negative. And, it, you know, Paul is trying to use the voice, which is, a, you know, a way to psychologically control people through language to control the Fremen. Um, and so, you know, it's a little bit uncomfortable when you read that scene. Um, and it's it's a very interesting to, to, to read scenes like that throughout the novel. I wanted to talk about uh, science fiction and colonialism more broadly because he, Herbert may have had this complex relationship with it in the Dune novels, but actually colonialism and, and science fiction go hand in hand to some degree. It's one of those genres that's always been very dis very concerned with discovery. Uh, it's a, a, it's a, uh, a, a genre that was very popular in the colonial period, the age of exploration. And it's something I think that you've thought a lot about. Your academic work focuses a lot on the, the history of space exploration and how colonial norms are inscribed in contemporary Islamic law, uh, international law. Yes, yeah, you know, Dune is, um, uh, is very interesting because yes, science fiction has a sort of a large scope of dealing with colonialism. Um, for me, what's especially interesting about Dune is that for Frank Herbert, colonialism is not just a metaphor. It's a real thing in the world that he's trying to grapple with. Whereas for a lot of science fiction, especially of his era, colonialism is, a, is, a, is very metaphorical and it doesn't refer to you know, specific things that are happening in the world today. Mm. You also explored some of these topics in your own fiction. Yes. Um, yeah, my uh, my own fiction is probably subliminally, you know, influenced by Frank Herbert in a lot of ways, yeah. whether I know it or not. Um, uh, because, yeah, I, I, you know, most of all of my work is about my fiction, my fiction and my historical academic work is about uh, colonialism in some sense. Uh, and, you know, I I think there's a tendency in among uh, critics, academic critics of science fiction and science fiction writers and readers these days to say, you have to be fully creative in how you imagine the future. And, and, you know, and then you have to imagine the future in the first place. Um, and uh, for me, what I love about good fiction is specificity. And I think there's a, an idea of creativity coming out of limits and that if you write to your present, or even to the past. A lot of my fiction, for example, is science fiction, but it takes place in the past, or it's right. about the past continuing into the future, right. which is a very Dunian, Frank Herbert, Persian kind of thing. Because yeah. what's so fascinating about Herbert is that unlike his contemporaries, he wasn't imagining the future as this totally other place, but was a, an ima imagining it as a, a very specific extension of the past. 
Um, and, and I think through limiting himself in how he imagined, he actually imagined something totally new and interesting. And, and, and that's something I try to embody in my work. Yeah, and, and why do you think it's so important to have these limits in the writing? Yeah, I think because partly, you know, I like to say maybe it's the, the limits of my own creative mind. <laughs> but I think <laughs> I think also there's a tendency when one um, treats creativity as an abstract, as coming from an abstract place, then it loses a grounding in the reality of human experience, but also yeah. in the reality of our contemporary politics and yeah. structures of power. And those limits are what allow you to write to and through and beyond the problems that we deal with today. It's the politics aspect of it, actually, that makes it very interesting, because if you take out the possibility of these external answers, something that just appears deus ex machina into the novel, then what you have to do is you have to figure out the answers within the politics and the society, which is the more interesting thing. It's the thing that makes us human, I think. Exactly. And then, and then going to abstraction always, in my mind, lends you to just fall right into whatever preconceived biases or subjectivities you have in the first place. Whereas writing to politics and to your limits allows you the re reflexivity to deal with your limits and try to move beyond them, which is what Herbert is trying to do in the Dune novel and what I try to do in my work as well, successfully or otherwise. <laughs> I, I thought we would start to close by talking about the reception of the film. And I know we've talked a bit about, you know, the white savior narratives and how it was received, but in a way, there's been this interesting distinction in the way that it's been received by uh, Muslim and Middle Eastern communities. Because on the one hand, there are people like yourself who clearly love the story and are thrilled that you've got this big sci-fi epic with these Islamic and Middle Eastern influences, even if they're critical of some of the, how those influences come across. Um, but then there are others, I think, who just, they can see nothing beyond the old tropes that they're so used to seeing. Uh, with Western stories dealing with Middle Eastern context. And I wondered what, if you thought why the, the, these two diverging perspectives um, came about when it, you know, when it comes to the film. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I, I've even seen some, some people, some, you know, Arab fans and stuff saying, oh, you know, I really loved it. You know, this is, a, you know, it's showing our culture. It's representing us in the future or something. And I'm just like, yeah, okay. <laughs> but um it's interesting that you have these divergent perspectives. I, again, I think part of it is the expectations that uh, people come with when they see a big, big production Hollywood film that they expect to see certain things yeah. that they don't like. And I think in many ways, those, those problematic aspects are present in the film. And so that's justified. But I think for people who love the source material, um, they, they are fascinated by the ways that Villeneuve is at least trying to adapt aspects of the story, even though he's not getting all of the cultural and religious nuances. Actually, I shouldn't say nuances, the core themes. The core themes, yeah, <laughs> the yeah, book. yeah. But um, I, Can yeah. I take from that that you tip more towards the not being able to get beyond the tropes aspect? Yeah, I, I think I think for me, again, the, the issue with the film is not so much the white savior stuff, because I think, at least to me, the, read, the, the depiction of Paul's character is pretty negative. If you sort of realize that Denis Villeneuve is an, is an indie filmmaker who's now, who's now being given these big budget films. And so his style is a very minimalist style. I mean, it's a very big production, but in terms of how he tells story and indicates themes and character, it's by small moments and things that they don't tell you explicitly, which we're used to in a big production film where they'll say, oh, this character feels this and thinks this, you know? Right. Um, but my problem is more, you know, the, the casting issues, the depiction of Islam and Arabs and the, the um, 
the 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 total not total but near total lack of agency given to the fremen yeah uh, especially yeah. in that very last scene to me was really you know sort of you know this black anger and then he kills the guy um that to me was the most unsettling aspect of the film yeah i mean these tropes they never seem to go away yeah. um i think hollywood is very aware of them when it comes to certain communities like the african-american community but when it comes to other communities they still seem to they just can't see beyond them i think or yeah. it's just laziness perhaps yeah I, th I think it's just you know part of we just need writers and artists to be part of the process Yes, I think that's absolutely part of it. You've been, speaking of writers, you've been a big advocate for Muslim and non-Western science fiction. Um, you're one of the co-founders of the Muslim Protagonists annual conference at Columbia for Muslim writers. So I wanted to, to hear your perspective on where you think Arab and Islamic science fiction is at the moment. It is definitely having a little bit of a moment right now. Yeah, there's a lot of really great work um, coming out on uh, um, Arab science fiction, Muslim science fiction, um, both in the U.S. Uh, among di the, the diaspora, but also abroad, of course. Um, I, I think it's been on the uptick. I mean, we're seeing, for example, uh, Shannon Chakrabarti has some really a really wonderful uh, trilogy of novels. Um, there's a recent book out called the Golan's Book of South Asian Science Fiction. There's, there's actually volume two of South Asian Science Fiction. There's just a, a lot of really great work out there. And I think for me, the reason I started that, I co-founded that um, Muslim Protagonist Symposium was, you know, the content of stories are always important, but you can't, it can't just be about supporting individual books or stories or artists. There has to be, there has to be structural change. And so whether successful or not, that was an attempt to say, you know, it's not just about, you know, what you're reading, but it's about the platform and, and, and what books we give attention to. And I think the main thing is we need more writers and artists, but also the writers and artists are there. And we need the yeah, readers yeah, to be yeah. paying attention and to be creating platforms to support them. So New Lines, mm. you know, is a great platform for that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for the, for the plug. Very good. Um, I suppose it's a bit of a provocative question, but do you think that Dune qualifies as Islamic science fiction? Uh, the novel or the film? Uh, let's or say both? the novel. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting, there's the whole academic question of what is Islamic or Islamic hate. Um, but um, I think I would, I would qualify it as Islamic science because its core themes, its core concern, not its, one of, of its many core concerns are explicitly questions about Islam and within the Islamic tradition. So you would, you would put it yes. as one of the first, uh, well, no, not one of the first, but one of the, one of the most important 20th century Islamic pieces of science fiction. Is that right? Uh, in the canon of Islamic science fiction of the 20th century? Yes. I mean, I, 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 I think I, I sort of almost reluctantly would just because the, again, the, the, it is so much concerned with Islam that it's hard. I think to say it's not Islamic is hard for me to say. <laughs> and then I said, I wanted to end with this question because uh, I know that you think a lot about both the, the filming of the novel and, of course, the novel itself, or the book itself. Um, how would you change the film if you were asked? And, or maybe how would you change um, the second film, one that's coming out? Mm, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, the way I would change the first film is I was, I, I think I joked about this somewhere, but is that you have the guy kill Paul at the end. End of story. <laughs> and then and then the film ends right yeah <laughs> okay. there, you know part one is just the one 
but the I think the way I would change the the sequel um, is you know I think it, partly it would be about the depiction of the Fremen, and I think I would definitely want to see the burial ritual for the man that Paul kills because that's a really important part of the book, um, and that's actually a part where they reference some really cool deep deep cuts Islamic theology stuff <laughs> um, mm. in the terms. But uh, also, I'd like to see more of an exploration of the differences among the Fremen. And to show, it's, it's, it's hinted at in the first Dune novel and in the sequel, that the Fremen differ about how much they actually follow Paul and whether it's strategic or not, and who actually likes him or not. Um, and I think it would be really cool if the movie increased that further. Uh, for example, in the novel, there, there's some Fremen smugglers who don't like the Fremen following Paul, and they think that the you know, the, the, the Seats tribe that Stilgar leads doesn't really know what they're doing. And um, I know in the sequel, they're definitely going to include these smugglers in there. And I think that would be such a cool way to show that, it, you know, decolonization, not all decolonial people are the same. And I think showing that diversity and bringing that out even further from what's in the novel would be great. And then I think also just fleshing out the Bene Gesserit and the Padisha and these other imperial characters and bringing out some of the Islamic and and other in, in Buddhist influences, even from the imperialist side, would be great. So that you're, you're showing that the Muslimness of Dune isn't just among the Fremen, but is throughout the Dune world. Harris Durrani, thank you very much. Thank you. You can follow Harris on Twitter at hdernity and buy his novella Technologies of the Self at all good bookshops. His essay, Frank Herbert, The Republican Salafist, can be found on newlinesmag.com. This week's podcast was produced by Joshua Martin and hosted by me, Faisal Yafai. You can subscribe to the New Lines magazine podcast in your favorite podcast app. And of course, you can find more of the best stories from the Middle East and beyond on our website, newlinesmag.com. Thank you all.